Oh, I'm sorry. I, put, I pushed it the wrong way. You all heard me all right. Second Peter 2.1. How do you discern what is true and what is false? Right? We have a lot of truth in our world, but there is an equal, if not much greater, amount of falsehood out there. How do you determine what's true and what's false? How do you determine what teaching, specifically when it comes to God, you will listen to and what you will reject? As Christians, we're called to subject everything to the Bible, to God's word, and that is what we follow. But in order to do that, we have to get to know the Bible very well. We have to understand the Bible and know it. And in our passage today, Peter is going to come before the church and the Christians, and he's going to warn them about false teachers. He's going to say, guys, false teachers will infiltrate the church, your church, and begin to spread doubts about God's word. They'll begin to spread ideas that are not only not true, but actually anti-God. Because as we saw last week in chapter 1, God uses true prophets to preach his word, to speak to his people, and he has throughout history, culminating in the great and final prophet in Jesus. But just as God sends true prophets, Satan sends false prophets. So you have true prophets that were sent from God, and just as many, even in our day, false prophets sent from the devil. And their goal is to come in, to obscure God's message of salvation, to make it muddy, to make it murky, to confuse you and distract you. They spread the false teachings for their own gain. They're selfish for themselves because although they claim to be part of the church or of a church, they're actually not. They hate both Jesus and they hate his church. And really, when you boil it down, there's nothing more offensive than messing up God's word to God himself. I mean, if God has said it, we should follow it. We shouldn't muddy it, mess it, and change it. And so to falsify facts about who God is and what he said is an awful offense because the eternal destiny of people is at stake and you can't get it wrong. You know, the the very first thing, what was the lie that Satan spread in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say? Did God really say And that's what the false teachers seek to do. They seek to come in and ask you, well, did God really say, fill in the blank? And so as we're going to see today, these false teachers will come, but there's really two things you can take out of this passage. False teachers are going to come. You've got to be ready for them. But for their sin, false teachers will be punished by God. They will be judged. Their judgment has been stored up. And that is in great contrast to true believers. If you are truly in the faith, those who God loves, he will rescue and protect and keep safe, even from the harms of these false believers. So for us, let us prepare. Let us prepare and be ready to reject the false teaching when it appears by knowing our scripture. So let's read 2 Peter 2, 1 through 9 is going to be our passage today. Read it with me. Just as there were indeed false prophets among the people, there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, and they will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories, but their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. 
For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world and of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral. For as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue. If all that, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. There's that dichotomy. But let's back up. Let's go to the start here. And let's get a picture of who these false teachers are. If we're going to talk about there are false teachers in the church, we need to begin to understand what do they look like? What do they do? How do you pick them out? How do you sniff them out? 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 begins to give us an idea. It says, For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and turn aside to myths. So these false teachers, they slip in to the church, but they slip in because they're wanted. Because people want to turn away from the truth and they want to hear what they want to hear. So we know people covet and they crave false teachers because false teachers will give them the lies that they desire that sound nice and sound good, but ultimately bring death. And so if we never hear a difficult truth, is that good? No, we need difficult truths as found in Scripture. They are good for us. The question for us is, are we willing to submit to God's true word, even when it contains truths that we might not immediately like? Would we still submit to that? So first, let's begin. Let's get into this now, though, and let's begin looking at what these these teachers are like. First thing, verse 1. There were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So what do you see there? Their influence is inside the true church. False prophets had plagued Israel throughout its history. This isn't something that's to the church age. It was true in the age before the church, in in biblical history, in Jewish history. It was true of the Pharisees even during Jesus' day. They were false teachers in Jesus' era. And it continues to be true. They arose during the life of Peter as he wrote this letter right before the destruction of the the Jewish temple. In Matthew 24, 24, it says, For false messiahs and false prophets will arise, and they will perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. If possible. But for our purposes today, what I want you to see is, yes, they have come throughout history, but... It's most important to know that false teachers arise within the church today because the church is one of Satan's primary targets. If Satan can incapacitate us and make us weak, then he's won, right? Then that is his victory. Satan cares most about tearing down the church. He wants to make us weak. He wants to distract us with bad doctrine. He wants to distract us with ideas that prevent us from preaching salvation in the name of Jesus Alone, And once we are distracted, then we are weak. And these false teachers, they thrive particularly 
when the people of a church begin to embrace the pagan culture that surrounds them. The more that we look like our culture, the easier it is for these teachers that Peter speaks of to slip in. Because remember, they call themselves Christians on the outside, but they truly belong to Satan as they infiltrate. So that's the first thing is they will come within the church. They will call themselves Christian, but not everything or everyone who calls themselves in Jesus is truly in Jesus. Secondly, though, you see, they will bring in destructive heresies. The second half of verse 1, it says it plainly. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them. And heresies here, if you want to think about, we, we don't use that word a lot. We don't always say, well, heresies. But if you want to define that word, it's an opinion which is substituted for submission to the power of truth. And it leads to division, leads to, to falsehood. And this passage could be translated as heresies of destruction for those who embrace them because it's going to bring destruction on those who believe and who follow. So these heresies of destruction come with them. They come in and they bring with them heresies of destruction. But in this context, it means disastrous eternal consequences. And we'll go more in depth on God's judgment later here. Third, what else do they do? You saw there, they deny the master. They deny the master, Jesus, who bought them. And this word often refers to a household, a master of a household, an estate. Right? So picture the estate, the master who buys the servants. He brings them into his estate. He has full authority over that estate. And so though they claim to be part of it, they are not. They deny the sovereign lordship of their master, and they truly hate him. They seek to make themselves the master of the estate when they are not. They're seeking to usurp and overthrow Jesus' authority. And understand that most of the time, these false teachers are not going to outwardly deny Jesus, but they will inwardly refuse to submit to his word. They will refuse to submit to his sovereign rule and his teaching. Next, verse 2, many will follow them. It says, many will follow their depraved ways. Many. And so false teachers, ultimately, what can we see here? They're going to have a very large impact. It's not just that they're in some little corner with a couple people in the middle of the mountains listening to them. No, so oftentimes, friends, false teachers have a very large impact, much larger than we would wish. I mean, think about it. The largest church in our nation is led by a guy named Joel Osteen. Most of you know him. And this guy is a false teacher. He teaches the prosperity gospel, self-help heresies. And he's popular. And so false teaching is popular because it tickles the ears. But what it isn't is biblical. And so the Bible is clear. What does Matthew say? The broad way leads to destruction, but the narrow way leads to life. And so just because something is popular doesn't make it true. It could be true, but popularity or lack of popularity has no impact on truthfulness. So many times, false teachers are popular. Fifth, it says here, not only are they popular, it says they have depraved ways. It says they will, they deny the master who brought them, bringing swift destructions on themselves, and many will follow their depraved ways. Now, that's an interesting word in the Greek, and it's a strong word. It means habitual sexual immorality, unrestrained sinful conduct. And so these false teachers 
are known for this kind of conduct and will be judged. And we'll see that here in a little bit. We'll talk about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter gives that as an example of God's judgment. But this is what the false teachers are like. They don't control themselves. They don't follow God's code of sexual conduct. Sixth, the way of truth will be maligned, it says. The way of truth will be maligned. What is What does that mean? The way of truth is right doctrine. It is God's church. It is the accurate proclamation of the gospel. But by their immoral behavior and by their deceitful teaching, they've damaged the truth in two ways. First, they make it hard for people to hear the real gospel message. Consider consider this scenario. If you're not a Christian, you're an outsider, you're just trying to figure out, well, what do Christians really believe? What is the gospel? How do I follow Jesus? And though, so one day you, you come to church and you hear Christians talking about how Jesus has provided us with a wonderful salvation. He's given us all that we need. And so we should live holy lives, lives of continual repentance from sin in order to honor him. But the next day you hear someone who calls themselves a Christian, supposedly, and they're saying that, well, repentance is not necessary. That's just optional. We can simply believe in Jesus and don't repent. Don't worry about that. That's for super Christians. Well, how confusing is that to an outsider? How confusing is that to someone who hasn't yet begun to really read the Bible? And so it confuses what the Bible teaches when these false teachers are out there spreading lies, spreading, did God really say? It damages the ease and the simplicity of the gospel message. I was just telling someone this the other day. The gospel message is so simple at its core. It's so simple to repent and believe, but they muddy and murk the water to make it hard for people to hear that simple message. But then what else do they do? How else is the the truth maligned? Well, these false teachers tarnish the reputation of the church. And again, for unbelievers, they don't know the difference between a Christian and a Christian. They don't know the difference between us and the prosperity preacher on TV and the guy that lives in the the $50 million mansion, right? And so unbelievers see this, and they begin to associate greed and opulent lifestyles with the true church. And they begin to think, this is what Christians are about, because that's what I saw on TV, They begin to believe that churches are out to just fleece people out of money, right? All these kind of things become part of popular culture that people believe about Christians, regardless of if they're true, because what's happened? The false teachers have come in and they've muddied the water and they've begun to call themselves something they are not and it gives the church a bad name. It gives you and I a bad name. Well, what can we do? How do we counter that? How do we deal with that? Well, to counter these relentless efforts, these are satanic efforts, true Christians have to be both doctrinally pure and living righteously. When we are doctrinally pure, we know what Scripture teaches, and then when we live righteously, people begin to see that, oh, that's how Christians live. That's what Christians believe. It's not what I thought. It's not what the false teachers told me. That's what a Christian looks like when they see it through your words and through your life. Philippians 2.15 calls us to this. It says that you, you church, may be blameless and pure. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among them you shine like stars in the world. And that's our hope, isn't it? That we we would shine like stars in the world, that people would see us and look to God. But then lastly, 
What do these false teachers do? What do they like? What's the last descriptor Peter's going to give us here? He says, verse 3, they will exploit you in their greed. They will exploit you with made-up stories. So these false teachers, they aren't here to serve God's church. They're here to use God's church. They're here to exploit God's church for their own benefit. They claim to serve others, but they're really only interested in serving themselves. They crave sexual immorality. They crave money as much as possible. Greed is an important part of their character. And when you look at these false teachers, it's obvious they're exploiting people. And in particular, they're exploiting people who lack knowledge of the Bible. They're exploiting people who are new believers, younger believers. They haven't read their scripture. And so they're able to use it for their own unrighteous gain. And that is a sad, sad thing. So what do these false teachers look like? Quick summary and rundown. They come inside the church. They bring destructive heresies. They deny the master Jesus, but many will follow still. They have their depraved lifestyles. They malign our truth and they exploit us for their own greed and their own gain. For us as Christians, we look at our world and we see, yeah, this is true. These teachers are out there. Who are some that you see that you know? You say, yeah, that fits these characteristics. I've seen so-and-so teach. They fit these characteristics. And what can you do to prepare yourself to counter that? To be prepared for when these false teachers come because they inevitably will and they will inevitably come into your sphere of influence and they will influence not only you, but your family and your friends and the people you love and you will have to counter them. You will, by God's Holy Spirit, have to go do battle with them. So how can you prepare yourself to counter their presence? Should you be engaging in a Bible reading plan? I know there's a bunch of you guys doing a Bible reading plan together. But how can you grow in preparing yourself? Should you be praying, praying for the Holy Spirit to protect you, protect your heart from the deceitful false teachings because we are vulnerable. Our hearts often wander away from God and we desire these things that these false teachers offer us. And so can you ask the Holy Spirit to protect you from your own deceitful, sinful heart? Because the false teachers will come. So are you ready? Are you ready? But then we go on. It's not just that the false teachers are here and there's a picture of them. The main thrust of this passage is now that God judges the wicked. These false teachers are wicked. They come to exploit. They come to steal, kill, and destroy but God judges the wicked. They may enjoy this sinful lifestyle for a time here on this earth, but the Lord promises they'll be destroyed. Look at the rest of verse 3 there. Their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle. Their destruction does not sleep. The promises of God's judgment and God's destruction are upon them, upon everyone who would pervert his word. And this is sad in a sense, but yet it's good in a sense that God protects the purity of his word. It's sad because we don't want to see destruction fall upon people. We want people to be saved, but God protects the purity of his word. And so for a lot of these false teachers, they might not face this final condemnation until their death. But their sentence, it says, was pronounced long ago. 
God is actively storing up his wrath against those who won't repent, and he's preparing to unleash it at the time that he desires against those who mock him. And so to bolster his case here that God will indeed judge the false teachers, Peter gives several examples from biblical history, examples of God's judgment upon the wicked. He's saying, these false teachers, they are wicked. And look back with me in your Old Testament, mostly in the book of Genesis, actually, and look back and look at what God does to judge the wicked. Because the way he judged those wicked back in Genesis is the same way he's going to judge the false teachers of Peter's day and the false teachers of our day. So he gives three examples of judging the wicked, of how God comes against them. The first one is he says they, God even judges the fallen angels. Verse 4, if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but he cast them into hell, he delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. This one's kind of a strange example. It's true, of course. But in many ways, the dynamics, the spiritual dynamics of how angels sinned and how angels fell, that kind of is a little bit of a mystery to us. What we do know, we do know the highest ranking of the angels, that's Lucifer, that's Satan himself. He arrogantly wanted to be like God. He led this revolt with a third of the angels. They were expelled from heaven. And so one view is that Peter is referring to all of these fallen angels, all of these demons here, when he talks about their judgment. Now another view, this one's kind of interesting, is that Peter has in mind a particular group of fallen angels, a particular group that committed especially terrible sins, particularly as described in Genesis 6. Um, and you can really get in the weeds on this one, right? You can get into like the Nephilim, and, and there's this idea of perhaps demons coming and procreating with, with humans and inhabiting and dwelling within people. And you get into all the weeds there, and pretty soon you end up looking like the ancient alien guy, right, with the hair. You guys seen that guy? Some of you know who I'm talking about. But we don't need to get into all that, and I don't want to make a judgment on which of those two views Peter is sticking with here. But it's possible that he's describing that particularly egregious group of, of, uh, of devils and, and demons. I almost said aliens. See, the ancient alien guy. Um, but regardless, regardless of what group is in mind here, this is the point. The point Peter is making is that God severely judges all who oppose him, even when his own angels opposed him. Even when that aspect of creation opposed him, he judged them. He took care of them. He put them in chains. The second example of how God judges, and this one you guys might be a little more familiar with. This is in the ancient world. This is in Noah's day. It says, and if he didn't Verse 5, spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. This one's a little more familiar to us. Even you kids, how many of you remember the story of Noah, right? Yeah, we know this story. But what happened here in the story of Noah, it's not just about what Noah was like. Noah was righteous, but what were his neighbors like? Well, here's what it says about them in Genesis. It says his neighbors... When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, he saw that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. At that point, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. And then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind who I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, the creatures that crawl, the birds of the sky, for I, forget, for I regret that I made them. 
Noah, however, found favor with the Lord, and we're going to come back to him. But that's God's judgment. That was God's judgment on the world of that day, on Noah's time. Everyone but Noah and his family fell under that judgment because the world was filled with extreme wickedness and sin such that it grieved God, it it hurt his heart, but yet he had to issue the judgment in accordance with his goodwill and in accordance with his standard of righteousness because all these people had violated it. So God sends the flood. He sends this great flood upon the earth, this huge calamity, the likes of which would never be seen again. And all of humanity, apart from Noah, apart from his family, they're wiped out. They're wiped out for their sin, their arrogance, and their folly. And it's a terrible judgment against terrible sin. We think of Noah's story as happy with the little animals and fun. It's really a horrible story of judgment, of people dying left and right because they were wicked and because like these false teachers that Peter talked about, they oppose God. They oppose God and he wipes them out. And so we see the example that God severely judges those who break his commands, those who oppose him. And then he gives one last example. He's like, all right, if God is going to judge these false teachers, I'll show you how he judged them. He judged them like he judged the fallen angels. He judged them like he judged the people in Noah's time, and he wiped them out with water. But then the last one is the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, God's judgment that fell upon them. Verse 6, And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. So the final example here, God's judgment on these two cities. And again, I think this is a fairly well-known passage. Most of you probably know this. But these cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, these are among the larger and more powerful cities in their area, just a little east of what would become Israel in that day. And they were powerful cities. But they were also known to be especially sinful cities. They're known for being inhospitable to strangers, but much more so than that, they're known for their sexual immorality, especially homosexual conduct. That's where we even get the word sodomy, Sodom, sodomy. And so they're known for their homosexual behavior. And in fact, they were so wicked, you go back and you read the story, it's in Genesis 19, they're so wicked, they tried to break into Lot's house and they tried to force angels into committing homosexual acts with them, right? So it is the height of depravity going on in these towns, in Sodom and in Gomorrah. And what does God do about their wicked behavior? Well, in Genesis 19, God sees what's going on. He's disturbed. And then it says in in chapter 19, verse 24, Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities and the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. So this is a potent example of how God judges sin and rebellion against him. You have God judging the angels, you have God judging the world through water, and then you have God judging this localized area through fire, through destruction. But the point being, if God would judge the angels, And if God would judge Noah's neighbors, and if God would judge judge Sodom and Gomorrah in these ways, won't God continue to judge people who are against him? If they opposed him, and this is what they got, won't false teachers in our day continue to get the same type of reward, punishment? Peter's point here, 
guys, their judgment is assured. If they don't repent, if they don't turn, God will judge the false teachers in a very, very serious way. But here's another problem for you to consider, for us to consider as a church. Won't God judge all sinners in the same way? Won't God judge all people in the same way? Won't God, won't God judge your friends who are apart from him in the same way? That's a problem for us. And I think the realization of God's impending judgment should bring us to our knees in prayer, should bring us to pray to God to use us as witnesses. You look at this example of, of Noah's flood and you look at this example of Sodom and Gomorrah and we recognize that our friends who don't know Jesus will be judged like that. So our prayer, we have to go to God in prayer, and our prayer has to be for God to save those who are facing his righteous judgment. So who's God putting on your mind to pray for? Who should you be praying for now that God would use you to redeem them, to save them out of this world, to save them from that judgment against sin? Because it's a right judgment. It's a good judgment for God to punish sin. But we don't want our friends to have to face that. We would rather they come to know Christ, live a joyful life, and have eternity with God in heaven. And that's our third point. Even though God judges these false teachers and he judges them in sin, there's a good side, there's a flip side to it. God rescues the righteous. So it's not that God just judges the wicked. He is such a good God that he is just in his judgment, and he also rescues the righteous. He pulls them out of these calamities, and we saw a couple examples there. In this passage, the false teachers have great reason to fear what's coming. They should be afraid. But Christians shouldn't fear. We don't need to live in fear. We don't need to worry for ourselves. Perhaps we could have a certain level of fear for our friends who aren't saved, but we don't need to live in fear for ourselves. But we often do. We often live in fear of the future. But we have such strong biblical promises that we will be saved and that we can delight in God. So what do we do? We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, fix our eyes on the confidence that he brings us because God delights in saving his own people. He enjoys it. He enjoys saving his people out of the world, saving us from whatever judgment is going to fall upon us. And so he gives us some examples here. How does God rescue the righteous? Well, these are meant to contrast with the judgment in each scenario. And the first one was Noah. God rescues Noah All the people around him were subject to God's judgment. It was a wicked, wicked world at the time. I would even go so far as to say it was much more wicked than our world today. That's just my opinion. But I think it was much more wicked than what we even see today to to get this level of judgment. But even in that, God preserved Noah through the ark. Through the ark, which actually, by the way, is meant to point us to the preservation that Jesus gave us on the cross. That ark, as a symbol of salvation, For Noah and his family points us to the true cross of Jesus, which is the salvation for those who believe. Genesis 6, 8 and 9. I read a part of it a little bit ago. It says, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among his contemporaries. And Noah walked with God. He walked with God. He was a true worshiper of God, living in the middle of a very corrupt society. He lived a life of worship before God and toward God, even when nobody else around him did. Nobody else did, but he didn't care. He served his Lord. 
And Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. Did you catch that in this passage? Peter refers to Noah as the preacher of righteousness. I was thinking about that, and I think, I think that's because Noah was forewarned of the impending doom. It's coming against his neighbors. And knowing that this judgment is coming, Noah goes out and he labors to warn his neighbors. He labors to preach to them and call them to repentance before it's too late. Now, none of them end up listening, but he went and he preached. He did what God called him to do. And aren't you in a position to do the same with your friends? Now, whether they will listen or not, like Noah's contemporaries, is not up to you, but God calls you to go and to preach. Be a preacher of righteousness the way Noah was. And so God rescues Noah out from under the flood because it says Noah was found as righteous. He was found as righteous. God pulled him up from the flood when all the rest were destroyed. And then he gives a second example. Noah was rescued in God's righteous rescue, but then Lot was rescued. And maybe some of you are not quite as familiar with Lot. But look here in verse 7 and 8. It says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral. Remember, Lot lived near Sodom. Lot was distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral. For as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds that he saw and that he heard. And so God graciously preserved this man, Lot. He graciously saved him and told him to flee before the destruction came upon those cities. In Genesis 19.29, it says, So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. Abraham was a relative of Lot, and he brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. Now, if you think about Lot's life, some of you are familiar with it, Lot had a lot of questionable incidents, but he did show signs of being a true believer. He did show signs of following God. And in this passage today, Peter highlights one of the ways Lot sought to follow God was that Lot was tormented. It says, the immoral people, the immoral behavior distressed Lot. His soul was tormented by what he saw going on around him every day. And that's the mark of a believer. It's not that we never sin, but it's that when we see sin or when we do sin, we are tormented by it. It bothers us. And that's because Lot knew that these sins, these sins, while they are against God, he's not desiring to grieve God in the same way his neighbors are. He doesn't want to grieve God. He doesn't want to put a barrier between himself and the Lord. So Lot recognizes this evil and is is tormented by it. And so just like Noah, God preserves Lot. He saves him. He pulls him out while the wicked around him die. And beyond this, what's more, Noah and Lot got, got physical salvation. They got out of the physical calamity. But beyond that, Noah and Lot also received eternal life in heaven, while their neighbors received eternal punishment in hell. So it wasn't just the physical salvation that God gave to Noah and Lot in these particular instances. It points us toward a more important spiritual salvation. And that's actually the key. Because how could Noah and Lot be called righteous? Did you notice that in this passage? Both of these men are called righteous. How can God call Noah righteous? How can God call Lot righteous? Didn't Noah get drunk 
Didn't he get drunk and, and fall over uncovered? Didn't Lot display even more shockingly sinful behavior at times? Wild stuff? But the righteousness of these men didn't mean that they had never sinned. No, not at all. In fact, Noah and Lot were righteous in the sense that they were believers. They trusted in God and they had a faith in the promises of God that were yet to come. And God credited that faith to them as righteousness. Think about that. They were righteous in the sense that they had faith. They had faith in God and they had faith in the Messiah who was so far in the future yet to come, but God credited it to them. He gave it to them. He imputed it to them as righteousness. The righteousness of Noah and Lot, the reason we can say righteous Noah, righteous Lot, it's not because of themselves. It's Jesus's righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus given to them, given to Lot. He's not righteous Lot because Lot is good. Lot is not good. Jesus is good. And his righteousness is given to Lot. And that is why we call him righteous Lot. Christ imputed gave his righteousness to them because they had belief, they had faith when those around them didn't. And Christians today, we look back at Jesus. We look back at what happened 2,000 years ago. And the only difference between us and Noah and us and Lot is that Noah and Lot looked forward. They looked forward to what was coming in the future. And we look back at Jesus, but we're both looking to Jesus. We're all looking at Jesus, whether he was to come or whether he had already come. We're all looking to Jesus for our righteousness because there is none righteous apart from Jesus. Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work, but the one who believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, that is Jesus, the one who does not work, but believes on Jesus, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. And that's the gospel truth. That is the center of our faith. Perhaps you hear this and you think and you realize you're separated from God. You're subject to his judgment, just like the false teachers in this passage, just like all the people coming in and infiltrating Peter's churches. And you're subject to God's judgment, just like Noah's wicked neighbors and just like Lot's wicked neighbors. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus in his righteousness can be given to you. It can be given to you just like it was given to Noah, just like it was given to Lot, just like it was given to every other person that has faith and has trust in him. And how do you do this? Even the children can get in on this one. How do you become righteous? It's not by doing good things. It's not righteous Lot who did lots of good stuff. It's not righteous Noah who did lots of good stuff. It's not righteous Kyle who did lots of good stuff. What's required is for you to turn away, to turn, to flee, to repent from your old life, to turn to a new life in Jesus and put your trust in him. When God came and brought destruction upon Sodom, he told Lot, get out of there, flee, run for the hills, pretty much. Run for it. And that is how we have to look at sin. We run from it. We flee from it. We turn from it and put our trust in Jesus. But so often we we don't do that. We fall into our, our, our sinful habits. We trust in our own righteousness. We think we can be good in and of ourselves. And is that a place you find yourself in this week? Have you been trusting in your own righteousness this week, pulling yourself through by your own goodness, 
thinking, if I can just do a few more good things this week, if I can just follow the straight and narrow, God will love me more. Or have you been trusting in Jesus? Because he is righteous even when you're not. And it's his righteousness given to you that matters. So our central truth today, and there really could be two ideas, two central truths, by the way, one talking about who the false teachers are, but I'm gonna, we're going to actually get back to them next week because the rest of chapter 2 is about the false teachers. So the central truth today that I want you to know and hear and focus on is simple. It's at the core of the Bible. It's that God judges the wicked, but he rescues the righteous. It's but, right? It's always the word but or therefore in the Bible. And here it is with our central truth today. God judges the wicked, but he rescues the righteous. Verse 9, I think, gives us a good summary of this central truth in this passage. So I want to end with verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the trials, and he knows how to keep the unrighteousness, or excuse me, the unrighteous, under punishment for the day of judgment. Rescue the godly from the trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. We Christians, we need to know, we need to understand who these false teachers are, what they're like, so that we can avoid them, so that we can combat them. Again, we'll we'll talk more in depth next week. They're described much more in detail at the end of this passage. But beyond that, we need to be reminded of gospel truths. We have to preach this to ourselves. We need to be reminded that God is a God of judgment against wickedness and sin. Our world needs to be reminded of that, that God is a God of judgment against wickedness and sin. But at the same time, we need to know that God is a God of love, and he's a God of compassion, and he's a God of rescue for all those who will look to him. Scripture says, look to God, look to him and be saved all the ends of the earth because he is the Lord and there is no other. There is no other option. You can't look to be saved somewhere else. You can't look to be saved through some false God. You can't look to be saved through yourself and your own good works. And so our call to response in light of this, in light of God's judgment and in light of God's rescue, spiritual rescue for his people is that we need to admit our need for a rescue. We just admit it. We need the rescue, and we need to look to Jesus to save. That is it. Just as God rescued Noah, just as God pulled Lot out of that physical calamity, what's more important is that they were rescued from their spiritual calamity. They were sinners just like you and I, and they were rescued by God. And you can be rescued too. You can be rescued too, but you must not trust in yourself. There is nothing in and of yourself worth trusting in. You must put your trust, your faith, in Jesus alone. And for Christians, we have a tendency to want to push through this life on our own. We have a tendency to think, I can do it, but our trust must be in Christ alone. Because oftentimes what we do is we've admitted, okay, I need Jesus for salvation. But we don't think we need him for day-to-day living for some reason. But we do. It's all of Christ for all of our life. And we need him for every hour of every day and every decision and every choice we make. We need Jesus all the time for guidance and for support. And so daily, will we go to him in prayer, in the morning, in in the afternoon, in the evening, and admit our need for rescue 
and look to him to save us because only he is able. And for us, can we look to him today? Can we look to him for peace and joy and victory in this life, in this world? How should you be looking to him today? What trouble has has fallen on you this week? What problem have you had to deal with? I'm sure there's several that you've dealt with this week. How can you look to Jesus and admit that you need him to rescue you from that trouble, to pull you out of it? Will you call on him to rescue you from your trial? Let's go before him in prayer and let's petition him. And we have the ability to petition him because we are his people and because Jesus is our mediator. He sits at the right hand of God the Father and he mediates on our behalf and so God hears us. So let's go before him in prayer. Lord, we come before you as your people. Father, we admit that we are but humans. We are but sinful beings. We are not great in and of ourselves. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. Lord, today we trust in you. We place all our trust in Jesus because we are not worthy. Lord, we ask that you would fill our hearts with a growing love for you. You would fill our minds with a growing love to hear from you. Lord, fill us with your word. Fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit. We need you so desperately each day. We're inadequate. We're sinners. But Lord, we trust in a God who is righteous, and we trust in your Son, Jesus, who came to save us from all sin. So Lord, we look to you for our power and for our strength, for that righteousness that is not of our own. We ask that you would give it to each of us today. We ask that you keep us away from sin, keep us away from false teachers and false teaching. Help us to be discerning. Help us to know your truth from error. But Lord, beyond that, as we run from error, as we run from sin, help us to run toward you, into your arms, into your love, your peace, your kindness, because you are a loving God who desires good things for your people. You desire to give good gifts to your people. And so today, Lord, may we run to you, for our safety and security and our salvation. May we trust in you above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.